1: That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST. This week, the trial began of Steve Bannon, the former chief strategist to Donald Trump, now accused of contempt of Congress. The charge was levelled after he failed to comply with a subpoena from the House January 6th Committee, investigating the failed insurrection on Capitol Hill at the start of 2021.
0: Bannon was defiant about his potential legal troubles saying, quote, pray for our enemies because we're going medieval on these people. We're going to savage our
1: enemies. So what does the future hold for one of the principal architects of Donald Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election? I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah. The full saturation immersion experience of Steve Bannon was just
1: wild. Jennifer Senior is a staff writer at The Atlantic and the winner of a Pulitzer Prize. She recently spent quite a bit of time exchanging text messages with Steve Bannon.
0: I was very interested in showing the world who he was. So I had my own motive for wanting to spend time with him.
1: Jennifer, great to have you on. Uh, You wrote a a, a barn burner of a piece for The Atlantic last month where you spoke to Steve Bannon and built up a whole picture of him. And you speak to him a lot in the piece. Just tell us how that came about. Oh,
0: my God. Yeah, the full saturation immersion experience of Steve Bannon was just wild. Um, It was benign. I hadn't won a Pulitzer. I didn't think he knew who I was necessarily. I wrote a note saying I wanted to write about him. I said that I wanted it to be um, immersive and that while I thought that there had been a good book done about him, I didn't think there had been a good for the record long magazine piece about him. And would they consider it? I came through the front door. I said that I thought that he was dangerous but influential and that I didn't agree with the damn thing he said. I also said truthfully that I thought his podcast was more interesting and had more variety than the average kind of conservative podcast, that it was different and more ambitious, which I think is true. You know, I think he, like his boss, really craves mainstream media attention and approval and being out there, he's fundamentally a media guy. To my amazement, he said yes.
1: I mean, that's fascinating about the the way that he and Trump both want, so they rail against, you know, the East Coast elite, but they want, the, they want to be accepted there in some way. Love
0: me, love me.
1: Yeah. Right. I mean, you've got this moment in there, which would chill the blood, I think, of any journalist, which is when one of his colleagues says to you of Bannon, he's using you. Oh, yeah. And if that's right, what do you think he was using you for?
0: I've never been the sort of journalist who um, seduces and betrays. That's not really my thing. I was very interested in showing the world who he was. So I had my own motive for wanting to spend time with him. I asked a lot of people as I was doing the piece, how can I inoculate myself so that I'm not being used toward his particular end? But the fact of the matter is there is high value, I think, and laying bare for the world who Steve Bannon is and what his project is. He's very transparent about what he's trying to do. There's zero mystery. He may be quite opaque when it comes to his own financial dealings and what he was up to in the run-up to January 6th, but he's made absolutely no mystery of what he wants politically. So I decided in the end this is journalism. And people have this weird thing, oh, you're platforming him. Oh, he's using you. Oh, no. This is what journalism is. You are shining a spotlight on someone who's doing something that needs exposure. This guy is trying to lay dynamite beneath the floorboards of American democracy and we ought to know what that looks like.
1: All this nonsense this show trial they've been putting up on uh, on Capitol Hill. It's nothing but a show trial. It's time they start having Other witnesses, they can give other other testimony other than what they've been putting up. Let's talk about the beginning of the piece. It's very arresting because you start with text messages from him to you. They're there reproduced on the page. How would you describe his communication style?
0: Oh, that is such a good question. And weirdly, no one has asked me that. Can I rise to the challenge of describing the literary text style of Steve Bannon? I mean, it's staccato. There's a lot of braggadocio and it's got extra habanero. You know how texts often involve a lot of banter, even with people with whom you don't have much in common? You do your emojis or whatever you do in order to establish a less formal means of communication. He only found things funny if I was poking fun at him, but in a flattering way. You know, saying, Oh, Steve, you're at once very disorganized and very focused. You know, that would make him LOL or something like that. It was a little bit like a Turing test. There were times that I felt like, based on his answers, I couldn't even tell if it was a bot replying. It was just like an own the liberals bot. But then there were times when he would say things like, I've just spent hours alone in the house I grew up in, and it's really lonely not having my father there because his father had just died. He would, at moments, surprise me by saying something heartfelt. There was nothing particularly manipulative that I could detect in those kinds
1: of texts. What also comes through, partly the volume of them, the time of day and night he sends them, I got the feeling this was a guy who was quite sort of hyped up, caffeinated, you know, on it 24-7.
0: God, there are an awful lot of them. (laughs) No, no, I understand. Like the sheer volume of them is kind of, it it was just a cascade, right? There was just this never ending drip on my phone. And my phone would ping at 1130 at night. It would ping first thing in the morning, although I would mute it. You know, he's an insomniac. Bear in mind, he podcasts, Four hours a day. He has the kind of podcasting logoria or whatever you want to call it. And he texts a lot, right? And he is always crowing about making inroads with working class voters and with Latino voters. And they are all sort of to make a point. He's just a news hound, right? He's just sending links. He's kind of a one man link geyser. You know, he's this roaring outboard motor of disinformation and random facts.
1: So you've got amazing stuff from him, but also some jaw-dropping quotes from fellow Republicans who describe him to you as mentally unstable, very sick, megalomaniac, and one calls him a cancer on the previous administration.
0: Yeah, and these are not low-ranking people, by the way.
1: Many of them still want anonymity because he still does inspire some degree of fear in his fellow Republicans. We know what liberals don't like about him, but what is it about him that has Republicans scared?
0: They would say that he is Machiavellian, unstable, as you just said, kind of mercurial The ends justify the means, no matter what the means are. And that's frightening because we saw from January 6th, the means can result in murder and the virtual, you know, undoing of the American project in a single afternoon. He's vengeful. You know, he's got an angry streak. He would merely describe it as Irish, which is, of course, ridiculous and unfair. He hasn't been toward me and I'm grateful for that. And I walk around in the world sometimes wondering whether I can convince myself that I'm sort of the Clarice to his Hannibal Lecter and that, you know, he's just not going to go after me, but go after the psychiatrist who cared for him for years.
1: I mean, you have just put your finger on the dynamic that I hadn't realized is going on in that piece. You are Clarice and he is Hannibal Lecter.
0: I don't think I've said that out loud.
1: (laughs) No, but you now have, I mean, that captures very well the dynamic of the piece and of the whole story. I mean, and you do get to see a human side of him in a way which some will find even more chilling because he is not a two-dimensional monster in your piece. He is a real person. And there's this moment where, very unusual, I think, for a journalist and a subject of a profile, he invites you to the funeral of his own father. And again, I think the reader reading that is to torn between, is that the real him and he's actually a real person with a heart? Or again, is this the ultimate PR move? Because how can you criticise a man who's, you know, when you've attended the funeral of that man's father? It's both, Mm. um,
0: because it's a hell of a PR move. I mean, how can it not humanize someone? And also his father was this remarkable guy. He was 100 years old. Five kids, worked for the phone company for over half a century. You know, was this storied figure. He has a lovely family, big, warm, Irish, Catholic, boisterous, charming. They couldn't have been more welcoming. But of course, they're so used to that kind of thing from Steve, they just barely blinked. So on the one hand, that, I got to see all that, right? And that, that works to his advantage. He was also really distraught. I have to say one of my takeaways from that funeral was he drew no attention to himself he gave a beautiful and highly appropriate eulogy. It was about the grandkids and about his father. It wasn't like some plausible simulacrum of a human being. It was heartfelt. He was crying, he seemed very happy to see me and he seemed happy to show me his Richmond, Virginia and to point out all the landmarks. He seemed happy to have somebody to ground himself with and to talk to in the bar afterwards and to sort of distract himself. I didn't uh, not enjoy myself spending time with him. Um, I don't enjoy listening to the war room at all. You're going to carry this thing uh, eventually to your grave, okay? Because it is
1: a mark of shame and you are a stone cold coward. A stone cold coward. That's his podcast.
0: That is his podcast of which he now does four hours daily. And that is not a pleasurable experience. It's a very unpleasant experience. There's a lot of anger and overt disinformation propaganda elements, tons of them, actually. I mean, I would say the bulk of it. It's got some kind of wonky analytical elements. But the tenor, the register of that podcast is upsetting. He personally is very sunny and very easygoing. And, you know, it's funny. The first time I ever met him, he has that long, crazy hair and he's got that disheveled double-layered shirt look, it almost implies flip-flops, like he's the dude from the Big Lebowski. Like in some other world, that's who he would be if he weren't like a proto-populist nationalist.
1: So let's go back through his life, how he got to this point, because you do some of that. And it's an important part of the story politically of how he got to be the force in American politics he is now. In the 2000s, he was a guy who'd been on the edges of the entertainment business and also finance. You mentioned, remind us that he worked for a gaming company, Internet Gaming Entertainment. I mean, all of that is interesting because he's not somebody who's just been, you know, working through Washington and Capitol Hill all these years. He has all this hinterland in terms of his career. But there's this thing which you pick up on that Bannon observed about the world of gaming. And I think it's it's relevant. This this thing about Dave and accounting. Can you just explain to us what it was that Bannon spotted and why you thought it was so significant?
0: Yes, 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 yes. As you point out, he's had his passport stamped at a lot of fancy places, right? He was a banker for a while, you know, at Goldman kind of in Hollywood for a while with his own boutique investment bank. And he worked in Hong Kong at um, a gaming company. And he did not tell this to me. He told this to Errol Morris for a documentary that was really good that got quasi kind of canceled because people were very interested in deplatforming Bannon at that point. And again, I think people do that at their own peril because – Bannon said the quiet part out loud. He said something that was so useful for understanding the way he thinks about politics and organizing all the angry energy out there. He noted when he was working in Hong Kong in the mid-2000s, there were all these young men who spent an inordinate amount of time gaming and preferred their online selves to their real selves By quite a lot. Their idealized selves, these avatars, were really who they truly were. The way that he put it was let's say you're Dave in accounting. You weigh 250 pounds, and one day you drop dead of a heart attack. You don't have a real community to speak of. You find some preacher who's never met you. 10 people show up at your funeral. This guy talks about you superficially for 10 minutes. You're dropped in one of those perpetual cemeteries, and that's you. That's Dave from accounting. But online, Dave from accounting is Ajax, and Ajax is the man. When Ajax dies, thousands of people show up to his funeral. He gets carried to the funeral pyre in a caisson. The warring tribe comes out to fight. And it is such a big deal. Men and women stay home from work to attend Ajax's funeral. Now, who's more real, Dave in accounting or Ajax? And his point was it's Ajax. Ajax is the real one. That's who everyone wants to be. And not only that, but your community online, Ajax's friends are your real community. So the first thing he did when he got to Breitbart News was he built out a comment section because he realized that this online community was more real to them than their in-real-life communities, their churches, their else clubs, their whatevers. They felt the most themselves as their online commenter selves, their omnipotent, all-powerful, obnoxious, uncorked id selves. Just think about January 6th. It looked like some kind of online cosplaying, right? It was people showing up as their own avatars, fighting a rival army, fighting the Capitol Hill cops, missing a day of work for this cause, men in particular.
1: And you've just brought us there to January 6th. And of course, that's why he's been in court this week. Just before we get to that, though, the bit in between is yes, he's running Breitbart, this right-wing news website. He's realized the potential of the comment section. There's really an army of people there who one day can be rallied and used. And as you say, in a way that comes to pass on January 6th. But in between, he is recruited by Donald Trump in 2016 to run the Trump campaign, had a job in the White House for a while until they parted ways. In that relationship, Trump and Bannon, who was using who there?
0: (laughs) That's a very perceptive question. Uh, It was probably mutually beneficial, no? They each had their own motives. I mean, I would call Steve a kind of megalomaniac and I would call Trump a malignant narcissist. They each have reasons for wanting to be at the center of things and to use one another. What they both have in common is that they see other people as means to ends. Every one of these elements of the planning for January 6th is an independently serious matter. They were all ultimately focused on overturning the election, and they all have one other thing in common. Donald Trump participated in each substantially and personally.
1: The relationship comes to this sort of head, even after they've parted ways in the White House on January 6th. Uh, So just briefly explain to us why Bannon has been in court, what exactly he's been charged with in terms of his role in January 6th.
0: Contempt for not showing up to testify before the January 6th committee. He was claiming executive privilege, which was bananas. He was so far removed from the Trump court. He had left the White House by August of 2017. There was no penumbra of executive privilege covering him. Yet this is what he was claiming, that as a former aide, he didn't have to testify and that this was creating some kind of slippery slope for others who were advisors to a president. And um, no one bought it, including the Trump-appointed judge. So um, he's been held in contempt, two contempt charges. They each carry the potential sentence of a year in jail. And I think he's finally testifying in front of the committee in part because he just never thought that The hearings would be this successful at sort of getting information out of people, that it would capture the public's imagination, that other Trump officials would actually start talking. He told me right on the eve of the very first hearing that this was going to be a snooze fest. Wow. I mean, he just got that totally wrong. My story had already closed, but I didn't have an opinion one way or the other of whether it would be a snooze fest, but I didn't have any hope that they would be as sort of effective as they've been. I just thought, well... We're all in our separate media silos now, even if they're extremely well done. What kind of you know material consequences could they have? But they really have gotten people to speak. And I think he's speaking now because he's scared. But from the judge's point of view, his thought was, you can't just spin on your heel now and decide that you're going to testify when you've already been flipping the committee the bird, you know, basically for two years. So, you know, I mean, I think that he's underwhelmed, this judge. They've selected their jury now for that.
1: And just clarify one thing because some people would have been surprised that he was involved advising on January the 6th. They would say to themselves, "How oh, hold on, didn't Bannon leave the administration, you know, years before then? How come he was back in the inner circle?"
0: Well, I have this great quote that's on the record. I was so grateful. He was a former Trump aide, I think the first official hire of the Trump campaign, a guy named Sam Nunberg who said it straight out, others had said it to me off the record, but he said on the record, Steve Bannon needed a pardon. He was facing charges for the We Build the Wall campaign, you know, for fraud. Others had already been found guilty for this crowdsourcing program to fund the wall. And Steve Bannon needed a pardon from Trump for that. When Trump lost the election, Steve Bannon became furiously active in the effort to change the public perception about the election, to claim that it had been stolen, to claim that there had been all kinds of malfeasance done in the dark of night, all that kind of stuff. He's a showman and he's a PR man, you know, so he's a good propagandist. So he was recruited into the fight and I think he was hoping that there'd be a a quid pro quo. And Bannon was one of the last people that Trump pardoned.
1: In terms of January 6th, your piece could actually be relevant for the committee because you've revealed some... Inconsistencies in Steve Bannon's own account of what happened that day. Yes.
0: And that was really surprising. Did I think he would be honest with me about what he was up to that day? No. But nonetheless, the way it came about was surprising because I was interviewing his daughter, Maureen, who's as without guile as Bannon is full of guile. She was on the mall that day and she explained to me that. It became very clear to her early on that there was chaos happening up by the Capitol, that she was warned against going there by a fellow named Mark Fincham, who is running right now for secretary of state in Arizona. Um, He's one of these election deniers. It would be horrifying if he actually won. He contacted her and said, don't come near here. It's chaos. So she made her way back to her father's house with some friends, and eventually Fincham was there. And went to the ground level where he broadcasts the war room and then briefly went upstairs, which as far as I know is only accessible from the outside, and poked her head in and said, Dad, I'm fine and I'm here. And she said to me, he was working the phones the whole time. He was on the phone. I don't know who he was talking to. I don't know what he was saying. I'd like to think that he was on the phone with Trump, encouraging him to tell people to stand down, but I don't really know. I went downstairs and watched everything on TV and didn't really see him until it was time for him to podcast again at five o'clock. He initially told me, oh, I was downstairs in the war room the whole time watching it on TV. He absolutely denied that he was working the phones. And when I said to him, your daughter told me like the exact opposite, then he sort of copped to working the phones, but wouldn't tell me who he was on the phone with or what the substance was, what he was actually saying. The committee has learned from the White House phone logs that the president spoke to Steve Bannon, his close advisor, at least twice on January 5th. The first conversation they had lasted for 11 minutes. His daughter had indicated to me that it was his opinion that it ought to be sort of said that Trump won the election, something that Mother Jones got him saying on tape. And what Trump's gonna do is just declare victory. After then, Trump never has to go to a voter again. Mm -hmm. By 10 or 11 o'clock at night, Mm -hmm. it's gonna be even crazier. This was also all over the war room. Like he had sort of prefabricated this narrative ahead of time that if Trump doesn't win, it will be because the election was illegitimate. It was stolen. I don't know if he was shoring up that narrative. I don't know if he was trying to get people to stay the course and continue voting, even though a woman had been shot in the Capitol and another officer's skull had been crushed. What he was saying to me was so crazy, because if you take him at face value, his disappointment from that day is that members of Congress did not continue their vote and continue to reject the electors and to suggest that this ought to be tossed back to the states. He blamed Mike Pence for this, which is exactly what the guys with the noose thought. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's all converging. And now we're on, as they say, the point of attack. It's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen. OK, it's going to be quite extraordinarily different. And all I can say is strap in.
1: Yes, he thought the people who were a threat to democracy were those who were not overturning an election rather than the other way around. But on that point, the sincerity of Steve Bannon, to what extent do you think he really believes this stuff, that Trump genuinely won the election? It was genuinely stolen or is it just, with a wink of the eye, a play that he knows is effective in galvanizing Dave in accounts, you know, galvanizing those people in the comments section of Breitbart? Of course, he knows better, but it works on the little people. Which of those two is where you land?
0: I think definitely more the latter. But what I think is interesting about people who keep two sets of books is that eventually they do start to internalize their own Stories and they start to believe their own tales. It's the only way to sort of ease the cognitive dissonance. No one I have spoken to thinks that Steve Bannon really believes that the election was stolen. No one. He will tell you that he believes it with all of his heart and he'll say, I'll walk you through it, which is pointless because every time he guides somebody into a rabbit hole, 24 hours later, somebody will point out that everything that he has shown you in that rabbit hole is, uh, (laughs) I'm going to say manure, rabbit manure, You know, it's all bull. Now I'm mixing metaphors, animal metaphors, but you get the point. I have seen Steve Bannon do this where kind of like a kid who's good at debate, he will take a position that he doesn't even necessarily believe and argue the hell out of it until he sort of starts to buy it and get very excited when he starts to realize that he can marshal arguments in favor of it. And that was often the sense I got from him that there was something exhilarating to him, intoxicating about mounting this argument. There are some election deniers who have a more benign take on this, which is they think COVID was this opportunity that Democrats took advantage of. They were able to expand you know, mail-in voting. They made it possible for people to vote closer to the voting deadlines. They added ballot boxes. They gave more access. They did, in other words, what most democracies ordinarily do. They made it easier to vote. It's harder in the United States to vote than it is in a lot of countries. This was just an opportunity to expand access. And this worked against Republican interests. That's a different kind of objection, and it's a different kind of conversation, It's still, to me, fundamentally deeply anti-democratic to resist all these things that make it easier for people to vote. But that's not what Steve Bannon is peddling, right? He's saying that people are harvesting ballots and that there are fake ballots and that there are failed signature matches and that there's this and that. Every stupid conspiracy he was willing to float on his show. And they're dangerous.
1: Very interesting. You notice that he has this sign on his mantelpiece, there are no conspiracies, but there are no coincidences, which allows him to occupy this nice little gray zone between conspiracy theory and not. But we've got to talk about, and you talk about, the ultimate conspiracy theory of all, which is anti-Semitism, the notion that the Jews are secretly plotting everything. You notice stuff that goes on, as it were, below the line, listeners to his podcast, trafficking in really overt anti-Semitism. And you, you, you can paint a picture of a man who absolutely winks in that direction Dog whistle would be another way of putting it, the mentions of George Soros and so on. Where did you come to in the end on where Bannon is on that?
0: That's a painful question to answer because, of course, it's personal, right? He knew I was Jewish. He bent over backwards to try and show me that he was not anti Semitic clumsily, you know, mentioning how much he loved Jews too frequently, too often for it to feel okay. I don't think he experiences any kind of personal revulsion around Jews, but that's not all that anti-Semitism is. It's a theory, as you say, it's the mother of all theories about who has power and who controls what. I think he is more than happy to promote those theories implicitly, but also kind of overtly. I mean, there was a moment on his show when he just blurted out that Macron was a former Rothschild spanker. There was no reason to bring that up. None. None. It had to do with nothing. And I think Steve is naturally conspiracy-prone, whether he wants to admit it or not. He has questions about September 11th and how Building 7 came down. He's mistrustful generally. And I think it would not be a stretch to say that he has questions about Jewish influence, even if he's claiming that he doesn't.
1: So overall, though, what did you come away thinking Steve Bannon wants? What's his aim with this whole project. We get right now it's about the stolen election. We get that he owns the lib, constantly trying to tear down institutions. But what is the vision he has? What does he want for America?
0: Unfortunately, I'm not sure that he has a clear vision. This is the question I asked him the most. Once you've blown everything up, what gets built in its place? I mean, I just see a smoldering crater where our institutions once were. He's very cavalier about it. You know, oh, some people are meant to clear the fields and other are meant to sow them. And he just sees himself as the guy who clears the fields. To me, that's nihilistic and irresponsible and dangerous. I think what he personally might want is relevance. He's kind of a seeker. He's got a Zen bench. He does meditations in the morning that range from like Zen meditations, but also like spiritual exercises Some are sort of Christian inflected, some are Hindu traditionalist inflected. He's constantly recruiting from different faiths and different spiritual practices in order to, as he says on his show, use his agency. He's interested in some ways in making history and in being consequential.
1: On those lines, he is facing trial. As you say, he's facing a possible jail sentence. Is he one of those people who thinks, yeah, actually bring that on. Going to jail would be quite good to burnish the Bannon legend.
0: I've never put that to him directly, but I would doubt it. I think that that would be making the wrong kind of history from his point of view. I don't think anyone relishes the idea of going to jail. I think they're all rather afraid of it. And I think it's why he's testifying.
1: Last question to you, Jennifer Senior. Are you still texting with Steve Bannon?
0: We were for the first few days, and then it very abruptly stopped. And I have to say, I've never been so relieved to be ghosted. (laughs) (laughs) It was stressful texting with Steve Bannon. Like I said, I found him pleasant company, but it was a disorienting company and uh, it was stressful company. So I'm enjoying the quiet.
1: Jennifer Senior, Pulitzer Prize winning writer for The Atlantic. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me. And it was a pleasure to finally talk to the byline.
1: <laughs> and that is all from me for this week. Next week, my colleague Joni Grieve will be in the chair. So make sure to listen out for that. But for now, it's goodbye. The producers this week were Daniel Stevens and Yelena Sofrenievich. The executive producer is Mazev Tahaj, And I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts?